0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 126 of the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik. This is an interview with Jessica Austin, and I, you can tell at the beginning that I'm really nervous because she's just so flippin' cool. Uh, So we talk about her play sin street social club which recently opened at the arvada center which is a modern adaptation of the rover which is a really cool play also Jessica's about to open between us which is a very cool uh, new set of plays or rather performance experiences produced by denver center for the performing arts off center wing Very neat in that there are only one or two audience members for each of these one-hour experiences. Uh, So check it out if you're able to get tickets still. That runs through May. We also talk about Jessica's podcast, The Required Read Guest, which you, you should check out all of her stuff because it is all exceptional. So without further ado, please enjoy episode 126. Hey Jess, welcome to the podcast. The most, I don't know if you feel this, you don't really have guests on your podcast. It's like you and your bestie, but like I get most nervous at introducing people's names. So I'm going to let you say your last name so it is said correctly. Well, it's because I brought to you the most complicated last name (laughs) ever. Like
1: it's, it's this German word that has those three consonants jammed together and those letters don't go together. Mm -mm. Can you think of anywhere else in the world that S, T and G are crammed together? No, unless it's an abbreviation or like right? a really obscure stage direction. No, <laughs> right? <laughs> Those Germans. Um, I'm Jessica Austin. Okay. Austin. It's like Jane Austen, but with a G. It's okay. Very cool, cool,
0: cool. So wh- you are like me and very busy and doing all the things uh, which you sort of have to do to be a working artist these days. I think yep. people don't realize. I don't know if you get this a lot. People are like, "How do you do it? All? Just how you seem so busy. How do you do it all?" And <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like, because in order to be relevant, I need to produce a lot of work and do a lot of things and have a lot of people knowing about it so they will hire me. Well, and also, we're, we don't have the luxury of having jobs that last for decades. Exactly. You know, like, maybe
1: you're teaching a six-week course, yep. but you pick up an acting job that overlaps three of those six weeks, so yep. you're working 14-hour days for three weeks. But then that teaching gig is going to end and the acting job goes on and, like, you you kind of have to, like, sandbag work because we don't know when
0: we're going to get it. Absolutely, and you're sort of just presenting the best on Facebook so that (laughs) people come to the things and think you're, like, super put together. (laughs) Anyway, I want to congratulate you because you have a show that just opened at the Arvada Center, Sin Street Social Club, which is an adaptation of one of my favorite classical works because everyone's like, oh, my gosh, Shakespeare. Oh, my gosh, Moliere. They always forget about the rock star, super spy, badass, Afra, And I don't know her, I can't, pronounce her last name either, so I'm going to have you do all the last names oh, for this podcast. Oh, goodness. Because you were going to say
1: it, and I was, because I've heard Afra, I've heard Afra, I've heard
0: ben, ben, I've heard Bean. Yeah.
1: Bane, like. Same. So we're, I'm not going to call her Afra our girl,
0: our girl, A.B., mm-hmm. people don't really, like, she was a spy. She was the most, like, she was one of the best played playwrights of her day, and like, we're just like, Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Yep. Uh, Yeah, he gets gets all the glory, and you're like, come on,
1: but our girl AB, not unlike Angelica Bianca from Mm -hmm. The Rover, was producing, and she was doing cool shit, and she was earning money doing the writing,
0: which is cool. And so, folks, if you are just now hearing about our girl, A.B., <laughs> question the structures which educated you. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. Well, honestly, though, because
1: yeah. you're at CU Boulder in a Ph.D. program totally. right now. Yes, yep, I am. So in my undergrad days, we had the Norton Anthology of Drama, which mm-hmm. all undergrads have. Yes. Paper-thin pages, a mm-hmm. million fucking, a million gosh-darn plays. <laughs> and ha <laughs> <laughs> I caught myself. Mm-hmm. But uh, the rover was in there, yeah. and we never read it. And we flipped past it, and I remember stopping on it and seeing. Was Oliver's class? Uh, it was Jim Simon's intro
0: okay. a million okay. years okay. ago. I don't know who that is, but um, yeah. Mm-hmm. He looks like Sean Connery. Cool. He was awesome. So Sean Connery's like, we're not going to read this awesome play written by a woman. But I have to say that when I went to Naropa, mm-hmm. Ami Diane was teaching our acting class. And he's like, we're going to do As You Like It, and da 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 da. And I'm like, can we have a conversation? And I eventually turned it around so that our the classical scenes that we were doing were from the rover and I got to play Wilmore, and my friend uh, Annabelle Torado played Angelica and we constructed like a fembot bra for her and yes. made it very like Austin Powers and fembot. It was amazing. But I stopped you from saying something else cool so please continue. Oh, I think it was just
1: along the lines of that wasn't assigned. And when I go to the things that I was assigned it was all cisgendered white men. Yep. Um, I feel like there might have been a little bit of Spanish influence somewhere,
0: but it was still European, and it was still predominantly male. Yeah. and I remember, like, going to parent-teacher conferences. I was an only child, and um, I'm a Leo, and so I really (laughs) like hearing people say nice things to me. So I would always opt in. And I was basically a straight-A student except for Jim, and we don't talk about that. But, uh, but I remember going to the parent-teacher conferences mostly because it was teachers saying nice things about me, and whenever we would go to an English professor, a teacher, my mom would be like, what's the ratio of male-to-female authors that you're teaching my child? And I remember from those conferences how uncomfortable that made the teacher, because people don't even realize that the perpetuating colonization and patriarchy sometimes it is something that you don't look at until you suddenly have to. Right. Like I remember there's a
1: Stephen yeah. King novel, I think in The Stand, where he's talking about you go into the monkey house at the zoo and it's overpoweringly stinky. And eventually, yeah. a couple minutes in, you lose awareness. Yeah. And you're, then when you have to wake up your brain and go, oh my God, I'm in the monkey house. <laughs> and oh my God, we are in the cisgendered white author house. Right. Um, right. It's
0: overwhelmingly prevalent. Absolutely. So how how did this project cuz a lot of folks don't know I'm reading, I just started reading Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, and, and okay. she talks about ideas, sort of trying to find people in the world. So how did this idea get to you, and what was the timeline between the idea, mm. the writing process, and opening night? We're coming up on about the two-year anniversary of where the idea started.
1: And I was talking to uh, the theater salon at the Arvada Center the other night, and they called me out because I was saying we a lot. So it was very royal we. <laughs> but it, I, the, the royal we in that is actually myself and Lynn Collins, artistic director of Plays. Beautiful. Because as a female director, a female artistic director, she has been adamant about we are having female representation in this company, both in the works that we choose and the people that we cast. Right. Let's get parody on stage. Yeah. So Lynn came to me and after the end of the first Arvada Black Box season, you know, at the end of every season, theater companies do your exit interview and you talk and she's like,
0: suggestions yeah.
1: yeah, are you happy? What could we improve? Especially mm-hmm. after the end of a first season. Right. And she was like, why don't you adapt something? Um, I wrote a curtain speech and rhyming verse for Tartuffe. Yeah. She was like, y- your writing's pretty interesting. Why don't you see what you can do? And we were looking for something in the public domain, because mm-hmm. of course, um, and something by a female writer. And the original
0: already narrows it
1: the heck down, right? Narrows it the heck down. And then the original thought was to do a novel adaptation. Mm. Because the first season... No, there were no novels that season. The second season was Sense and Sensibility. Mm. And then once you move on from Jane Austen or the Brontes, who do you have left? Right. Right? And I mean, so we started talking about female novelists, public domain. It's getting trickier and trickier. And she was like, why don't you take a look at the rover? Yes. So I took it and I was like, I, that was in my undergrad book and I never read it. So I read it. Um, I read a synopsis to clarify what the hell I just read. Right. And I was like, the, the bones of this are solid. Yep. Um. The structure is good, confusing in places. And I think it's time to take a new look at it. Because outside of like a Shakespeare festival, who can do a play with 27 people? Is 27 or 21. It's, it's a big cast. It's around
0: two dozen. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Absolutely. It's, it's
1: prohibitive in professional theater casting. Like, you cannot pay that many actors. And also, there's the big problem of Florinda's comic sexual assaults. Yeah. Which uh, you have to look at that and go, we're presenting a comedy, and we have three instances of comedic rape. Right. Uh-oh. You know, you look at Two Gentlemen of Verona has the same problem. There's the rape of Sylvia. And the people patch it by putting a Band-Aid on it, by giving making the – or Proteus forgivable. They kind of fix it. <laughs>
0: yeah. No. That was not interference, folks. That was me verbalizing – how I feel about toxic masculinity in classical theater. Continue. It's gross. That has no place in comedy. It's, it's gross, and we condone it. We condone mm-hmm. it year after year after year because Shakespeare is free and because everyone loves Shakespeare, and we still keep doing it, and I've had enough. Mm-hmm. And so how did you approach that, those scenes in The Rover?
1: Uh, well, these were, these were tricky, and I had to think through them. And I'm, I'm not sure we've succeeded, but we've made them not icky. And I kind of turned my ear to my friend who is in wardrobe there, Annika, because she has a sensitive is a sensitive person and has a sensitive ear, and I just was like. W- what's the read on this? So the first time Florinda, the first instance of sexual uncomfortability, assault, um, hands on somebody who doesn't want them, is she mistakes Wilmore for Belleville. She flips him around. She kisses him. Right. And then you have the thing of she's like, "Uh uh-oh, and he's like, okay, and then he's on her. So she initiates. It's unwanted and she thinks it's somebody else. Right. Uh, And then we work, and then um, we introduce Lou and Blunt, or Luchetta and Blunt. Mm -hmm. um, And she, she, she's trying to get his money bag, and it becomes a comic bit of he's a rustic, he's a little more naive. So she tells him that the ticklish bit in the middle is what they do in France. And he's like, okay. Oh, oh gosh, so, yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah. I remember, I was called in for that role. I remember reading that scene. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, finally, um, Florinda, or Flory when she runs into Blunt in the street. His naivete in thinking, poking the midsection, is what take, taking advantage of a woman is or yeah. having his way with a lady. Yeah. So we have made it pretty disneyfied. Um because I don't want someone to be frightened
0: and I, yeah. an audience member worrying right. for the safety of this small woman. Because then it takes you out. It takes you out. You're not able to engage and invest in the story. Mm-mm.
1: So, you know, I don't we're not a, we're not heavily addressing sexual assault in this because the tone of the piece is slapstick and goofy and I don't want to take a serious topic and put it in the middle of a comedy and go, can we be good at laughing at that? Because we shouldn't be. Right. So I hope the tone matches my intention and that Florinda's journey with negative experiences at the hands of men is empowering for her as she comes to the end. No spoilers, but she, I think, has a lovely catharsis at the end. And I hope it's a journey of empowerment rather than, ha ha, let's laugh as these men
0: trade a woman between them. Right, absolutely. Were you... Writing with specific actors' voices in your head, and if you just want it to be a general answer, or if you're like, Yeah, I was really thinking of so and so when I was crafting this character's voice.
1: Well, uh, I had started working on this right after the first season at the Arvada Center, and I had just done Tartuffe with Emily Van Fleet. And oh my gosh, she's amazing! She's wonderful
0: luminescent and luminescent, and like, but like. Like, fireflies, where it's just, like, bright. Like, I don't know why I had to go into that metaphor, but no, she's, she's so like, lovely. she's like a human glass of champagne. Exactly. That That's better.
1: That's a mm-hmm. better metaphor. So, in the first page of the Rover, you get Florinda and Helena talking about being in love. And all of a sudden, Florinda's voice just went into Emily Van Fleet's in my head. And so whenever, so when I was writing Flory May, I would talk to myself out loud, and it got to the point where it was me doing my Emily Van Fleet impression as I typey-typed. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. And I was lucky enough to get her. Um, you, you know, I, we didn't know the company was not cast. Absolutely. And I was,
0: had to keep my fingers crossed. Right. Can you talk about another lovely human... I think more of her as a mama bear, but Emma Messenger as uh Angelica well what's you how how did have you renamed the Angelica character? She's now Angie B. Because mm. I remember I didn't I knew Emma was a part of it, but it wasn't until uh, this was all <laughs> in on stage studies with Oliver this week. Um, we we're doing these conference presentations and like the task is always on PhD students to like publish and publish and conference and publish, which is like not totally my jam, because <laughs> I'm like, but what if I get an acting gig? And then like I have to leverage a writing deadline or a conference against a rehearsal schedule anyway. But I was, I was thinking about that, and then sort of putting the pieces together, are like, oh, it's the rover, and like oh, that could count as the thing for this class. And then seeing the uh, promo video of, of Emma, and I was like, wait wait, is she Angelica in this? And then the pure delight as someone who's fat, as seeing a person of size in the most desirable and attractive role in, in the piece. So can you talk a little bit about that casting? I love that casting. Um, the first read-through we
1: did was with the current acting company last year. We got all the shows up and moving. And the first read-through was current acting co- company members, just to get it yeah, heard. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the second read-through, we did a different cast. Sure. And my, my thought was, I'm like, well, I'll go with the, let's hear um, another actress read it. And she was out of town. And I was like, Emma would kill at this part. Because she's yeah. funny, yep. she's wry, she's smart. She doesn't dumb herself down. Yep. So Fearless. 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 And I wrote in the script a stage direction that's like, um, you know, she, when Wilmore doesn't come back and she's mad at him. She's, yeah. She believes he loves yeah. her and he abandons her. Well, there's a moment in this script where I just wrote in the stage directions, is there a pro bono joke here, question mark? And then Emma ad-libs in that reading, I am a pro, and I want my bono. And I was like, God. (laughs) So that's in the script right now. And I was like, you just nailed it. Right. So I knew knew from the first reading that she could do it. And there was a brief conversation of the 2019 standard of beauty
0: is bullshit.
1: Yeah. And... We don't need a willowy forty-something beauty, like standard beauty. Like, right. could I don't want a Sandra Bullock? I don't want a Courtney Cox. I don't right. want that right. Hollywood right. aging actress. Um, you want somebody with presence and yeah. heart, and she's sensual as fuck. Yep. yep. As this heck, whatever. <laughs> Our Vatista Center audiences, if you're listening, I'm sorry about the swear word. Mm-hmm.
0: But but um, it just shows how shows how passionate you are, and then like that paired with my like oh this can't be they they did it's so important you know i'm directing a short of a, a stage reading right now and my friend brendan is the leading character in it and he's a junior uh acting and engineering double major let go I together love him so much He's like, I just, it's just really interesting like being directed by you because you see theater so differently. And I'm like, what? What? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you're all about representation. And I don't think of myself in that way, but I guess I 100% am. And its I hate to say that it's revolutionary, but it is. It's a big, big heckin' deal to cast a woman of size uh, I think we're seeing this more with, you know, Lindy West's memoir Shrill being adapted into a series mm-hmm. on Hulu with Aidie Bryant. But I remember in that in the New York Times interview with AD Bryant, she was saying, I knew I put the I put the task on myself that I had to be funnier than anyone on stage, so that all that they were seeing was talent and not my size. I'm paraphrasing. But I absolutely feel that way. Mm-hmm. I feel that way when I'm like going out for female-presenting roles. When I'm going out for male-presenting roles, which is what I like to do more, but, like, it's hard to, like, get in a casting director's head and, like, project that because I can only wear one thing to an audition. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not... It's a non-issue, right? Like, the vet assistant in Toxoplasmosis does not have to be a certain size. No. Because it is a gender-neutral character. Mm -hmm. It's... I just love... I cannot wait to see her slay that role.
1: And she slays it. Um, She is absolutely gorgeous and absolutely wonderful. And uh, with her casting, there were things that I considered as we were going through. For example, there was a joke in the script when it was written, not cast, it was in all the readings, uh, when um, Helena approaches and she's dressed in male garb. Mm. Um, Wilmore says something, and Angie B. turns her focus to Helen in in drag, in male drag, and about Something a little sexy. And Wilmore says, uh, leave the poor kid alone, you'll break him in two. And I was thinking sexual prowess would break this child in two. And I was like, oh, I need to be careful. Because if we have an actress of size, that then becomes a joke at her expense. Because we're so primed to laugh at actors,
0: actresses of size, excuse me. I I like actor. I think I'm an actor. actor. Emma's an actor. I mean, but I feel like it's not. And maybe I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but I feel like I feel like we're we're quicker to laugh at female actresses of size. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. But the thing is, we're primed regardless of the gender of the mm-hmm. actor. When folks are larger, we we are primed to laugh and expect them to be uh, lazy and incompetent, and because um, that's what's been projected to us. Mm-hmm. for the greater part of the 20th century and now into the 21st century. Yeah.
1: Well, that line's gone now because yeah. I don't want to risk anyone laughing at this beautiful human. Right. Um, and there's another thing, like, for example, you know, the time period it set, 1916 the South, an expression for cowardly was yella. Are you yellow? Are you yella? Right. And Regina Fernandez brought to my attention. She's like, Jess, you can't have that in there. And her character was never called that cowardly word. But she was like, if you ever do have an Asian actor in role, that's a slur. And I was like, you're right. Yeah. It's gone. Um, I don't. Time period, Shmian period. <laughs> this play needs to be cast with the best actors, and yeah. the best actors are someday going to be uh, Latino Wilmore. The best actress is going to someday be an Asian Helen. Heck yeah! So we need to make sure there's nothing in there that says Caucasians the default, because it's not.
0: Oh, I love you so I much know. in this moment. I just want it to be cast right. This is. I'll tell <laughs> you my favorite. My favorite. Um, uh, Courtney Meeker is one of my favorite playwrights. If Have mm-hmm. you haven't heard of her, y'all. To uh, check her out. I know my Seattle <laughs> listeners are very familiar. But she, I remember reading, uh, going after one of her plays, and it being, this is like 10 years ago now, but she writes at the beginning of at least this play, I think most of her plays, like, the default should not be to cast slim, able bodied, white, cisgender actors. Mm-hmm. And of course, right? But unfortunately, we need it. We need that reminder. As folks make those decisions about casting, we need a constant mm-hmm. reminder because, by and large, that is still the default, I would say. I uh, agree. That's where you go. And this play, you know,
1: Storyville was an incredible mixing pot, melting pot, whatever. And New Orleans in that time period was still segregated mm. and had a lot of racial issues going on, which yeah. like heavy sexual assault stuff, I didn't really want to bring to this table. Right. So I tried to keep it, the St. Clair family, although they own a dance club, are not themselves songwriters. Because I was like, I don't want to take that away. Because we have a white St. Clair family. Right. I hope in the future there is a black St. Clair family. Yeah. I hope in the future there's a St. Clair family whose ethnicity does does not match at all. Yeah. Like, this is not a play about making sure people, this is not a documentary play. Yeah. Let's cast funny people and cast our net as white as we can.
0: Absolutely. So we're sort of coming we're, we're uh, coming to the end of this part of the mm-hmm. podcast. But, of course, folks are going to want to see it before it closes in May. Uh, how, what's the best way for them to get tickets?
1: Um, ArvadaCenter.org, tickets for Sin Street Social Club. We run through May 19th. So there's plenty of time. But the Arvada Center has a great subs- subscriber base. So the shows are already starting to fill up. Um, so snag tickets soon because I think it will
0: get pretty full. Beautiful. I'm going on Mother's Day, y'all. You can come sit by me. It's going to be great. Sit by Woodick. Eat some snacks. Let's do it. So (laughs) moving on to uh, your performance career right now. Uh, What are you working on right now in terms of performing?
1: We head into preview tonight for a show called Between Us. Yes. And I'm I'm not going to say which one I'm in because... good. I'll be surprised when I go. Yes. Yes, I will keep it under wraps because it is a one-on-one theater experience, audience for one, or theater for one. Um,
0: one and there's one for two,
1: correct? Correct. Yeah. One of them, uh, two audience members can go. Several of them, one audience member goes by themselves, but there's four versions of the play running, so there's like four things happening at once.
0: Wow. Yeah. and That at least- takes micro theater to a new. Extreme. Yeah, not I mean, technically, you... micro theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, micro theater. What we did was shorter plays, but this is in terms of like immersive, site-specific, you know, stuff. It, it, it's very much like pushing the envelope, I would say. Yeah, well, because bite-sized, you had audiences of eight-ish for each? Yeah, it
1: was usually eight to ten each round, yeah. Cool. And I asked because I did not see it, even though my husband directed it, which is why there have been <laughs> that... no compliments
0: to friends, because I was like, I didn't see your show. It's it's I cool. It. I, I, I was a vet assistant, and then I was a bear, so <laughs> half the time you wouldn't even know it was me, but I had a, I had a great time. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: Well, so, yeah, Between Us takes it down to an audience of one, and the experience is about an hour to an hour and 15 of just being with another human. Um, and it's, uh, there's not a lot of plot. It's not like, you know, at first I thought it was going to be like the wand shop at Harry Potter World. Sure. Where it was like, I'm putting on a show for an audience of one. But it's not. It's just, I'm not a character in mine. I'm me. And we're just experiencing something together for about an hour. Yeah. Which I thought would be scary, <laughs> but it's a lot more comfortable than I thought.
0: How much How much of it is scripted? Is it sort of a la the way that Christopher Geist works in that you have an outline, you have a beginning, middle, and end, but you have a lot of freedom and a lot of it's interaction with the person who comes to you, or how much can you tell us? Um, I can speak that
1: there are, there are a lot of scripted parts in mind. The beginning and the ending, the intro and the outro, when I meet you and when I say goodbye to you, are scripted, but we're encouraged to make sure that we have it in our own voice. And we don't feel character. My name is Jessica. If you walked in, I would know you, Woodsick. You're Woodsick from life. You're not yeah. a yeah. stranger wandering into my thing. So, no fourth wall. No fourth wall. Right. Um, you're, you're you and I <coughs> me. Excuse me. And it's in the middle section of mine, it's almost just an extended conversation. There are prompts, there are bits of text, there are questions, there are interactions between us. But it's mainly just a discussion where the lens keeps being redirected to you. So, we're finding, we're, we're just talking. That's and insane. Yeah. And I just want to
0: say, y'all, like, this is, you gotta get on this. Like, is it selling, I would imagine it's selling pretty well. It is selling really well, because, I mean, they can only sell a few so tickets. tickets a night. Yeah. And, I mean, y'all, your tax refund is coming back soon, if it hasn't already. Right. Treat yourself, I mean, it was <laughs> so funny, I was sitting, did you encounter Beth Osnes while you were at CU? No. Beth Osnes is amazing, She's the uh, she's the head of the graduate theater program, and she and I, had this amazing meeting yesterday. And it was funny. I, I won't get into them. It was basically like, why do I have to have a research question? Like, I just want to do cool stuff. Can't that be enough? Uh, and she was like, yes. And come to me when you need to wrestle that octopus into a suitcase. Because I guess that's what a <laughs> dissertation is like. Someone had said that once. But I remember the, what she called the one and only finger wagging moment. She was like, you gotta take care of yourself. You gotta prioritize self-care because you're the kind of person who wants to say yes to all the things. And so, what a lovely experience to gift yourself with as an audience member. So that's that's the task uh, I have on all of you uh, who are listening. Go check this out. And I'm guessing DenverCenter.org yep. for tickets. I want to ask, how does your since you have such a strong background in improvisation, how does that intersect with? Uh, creating this show for you. it um, they, those, It's almost an entire overlap. Yeah. Because this, you know, since there
1: really is no script, it is me listening to you and hearing when something pops, when something is interesting, yep. when you have an emotional reaction. Yep. I have to be like, your eyes just lit up. What, why were you excited about that? <sighs> so we just talk, and I have to be on for 65 minutes. Yeah,
0: just yeah, me. yeah. And what I love about this is that there are several, it's yeah. not like you are doing... You are the only person doing this show. There's mm-hmm. how many without giving away too much, how many folks are holding the space for these three different shows? I believe there are
1: nine perform 10 performers. Yeah. At any given moment? To, yeah. So there's at least I would say 8 to 10 theater experiences for one happening around Denver at the same time amazing. Yeah, and nobody is gonna, like, know you're in a play when this is happening, because they're all in public spaces. Oh my gosh. You're not on the spot, and (gasps) it's not
0: scary. I'm so excited. Someone needs to, to, like, write about this for HowlRound. I don't know if you need to do it, but someone should. Someone should. Someone needs to know about this, because what an interesting model for other folks to replicate. I'm all about, like, in Seattle, there used to be this program called Storefront Seattle, so Mm -hmm. any commercial real estate that wasn't being used, if the uh, leasee was comfortable with it, Um, they would do, like, visual art installations. But I'm like, why can't... We need to, like, start doing that for theater, especially since in Colorado, a lot of the uh, recreational marijuana places have their money in real estate. Like, let's figure that out and, like, do... Mm -hmm. Like, let's activate these spaces so that they don't sit dark. Anyway, that's a comment, not a question. I have a curiosity. This is an interesting... So, interesting-to-me story. Uh, So, Seth Palmer-Harris, Uh, I remember one of the the first show that I saw when I came to Boulder was the Band of Tufts As You Like It as part of the Boulder Fringe Mm -hmm. and I went and I was wearing a red shirt and Seth this ties back I promise you're wearing a red shirt right now I am wearing a red shirt right now am I wearing a red shirt you are (gasps) should we do some Meister no no Um, (laughs) sorry (laughs) <laughs> I think I was just taught Miser really poorly um, so he was directed at a, a certain point to like basically like heckle one of the audience members and that night it happened to be me and so he kept saying the woman in the red shirt, the woman in the red shirt, the woman in the red shirt and I'm like I'm not going to oh, interrupt gosh. Like this is inaccurate uh, but I'm not going to interrupt a performer uh, because they're misgendering me and I remember the next night I went to another I went to a trans themed piece and some of the same audience members were at that we at that showing, too. And they said, oh, it's the woman in the red shirt. And I was like, it's the person in the red shirt. Thank you very much. And they're like, cool, 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 cool. And then a lovely a lovely full circle moment with Twist Your Dickens, where he was, because t- toxoplasmosis was, like, put into the improv. Yeah. As he was the heckler. <laughs> and he was just like, they were in it. And I asked him afterwards, because Rakim, who is all- Rakim Lawrence, incredible mm-hmm. talent, was also in the audience that night. And so I'm like, were you saying they because you knew both of us were there he's like oh no no i only knew you were there and so i used the right pronouns and so that really raised the question to me about like in crafting these pieces is there any thought given And this is not a call-out question it's a curiosity in terms of do you all gender the audience members or is there some point of entry so that if you are asked to refer to them with well you wouldn't because it's one-on-one right yes and I can only speak for my
1: piece, sure, because I have we're all right. run into different stuff, yeah yeah yeah, and I know there there is a piece that is themed around a blind date, yeah, and you you get the person that you get, Right. Um, regardless of what gender you would date, right you show up to your theatrical there's experience that person. and there's your person, so Interesting. yeah there there was in my text, there is no gender assigned to the audience member, um, and I think that the other ones operate as even playing field as possible
0: without putting folks into boxes yeah i'm just intrigued and and this was not i don't think this is and then after i asked that question i was like well no it's one on one but yeah yeah, that's just a question mark that i hold for anyone listening to this if y'all have any advice in terms of when it's a group of folks and, and an actor is tasked with gendering mm-hmm. folks, it's, just, it's curious, it's interesting to me. But when does that show run till if folks want to get that... the very few tickets that still remain? Yeah, there's a handful of random one-on-one. Know, like we, say, we say this all the time in marketing, because most of my 20 years in marketing, the scarcity mindset is supposed to drive ticket sales. Yes, and that does. But we're seriously saying there are maybe 12 tickets or so. Less than 20, let's say. Mm-hmm. Fewer than 20 left. So get on it. How late do you
1: run? Uh, we run through May 26th. Great. So May 26th. But when you do the math, I'm like, I will interact with fewer people in this show that runs from the DCPA from now until May 26th. Fewer audiences, audience members will encounter me than see one show of Sin Street. Yeah, And I'm like, that is crazy.
0: That's beautiful. It's really an intimate experience. And it's lovely. I love it. I kind of want to, I'm going to check in with you at the end of it to be like, what are the war stories? What were the, what were your favorite moments? Yeah, we will have a conversation. I, yeah. And I, I'll just say like, I was called into audition for this, but I was like, no, <laughs> just because I am like terrified of improv in some senses. When I was in middle school, we had an improv group that was called, you'll love this. The Hysterical Society. (laughs) And I just remember, like, there was a guest teacher who, like, shut me down one day, and I'm like, okay, cool, never do any improv again. But, like, and I have, and I have, but I'm much more comfortable with text. And that's, before we started recording, I'm talking, I talked about this concept album musical I'm working on, uh, because I love doing cabarets so much, but my least favorite part is, like, the, oh, I'm bantering between songs. Look, I, again... As, as y'all know, podcast is not a visual medium, but I'm, like, awkwardly gesticulating with my arm. There's a martini in your hand. There's a martini, yes. Y'all can't see yes. it, but there's mm-hmm. a martini in mm-hmm. Woodsick's hand. Uh, and so that's part of this, too, is, like, pushing myself to lean into that discomfort and the banter and the improv. Anyway, not a question. Not a question. But it's, uh, this is not questions only. We're not no. playing an improv game. So you also have a podcast which I'm very excited to listen to on my road trip to the Midwest next week. Tell me about your podcast and how it came to be. Yeah, Well, first of all, you will note, you will, first
1: thing you notice on my podcast when you listen to it, Required Readcast, mm. is you'll know why I said I'm not going to swear on this one because the other one is like nothing but swearing. <laughs> it's swearing in books. Um, but my improv partner, Lauren Ballman, and I, uh, we like podcasts. Like, we like My Favorite Murder. We like listening to those things. Yes. And... She and I have a great rapport, and we like the same kind of things. And sometimes when we're doing improv sets, it's like, well, let's just do our witty duo banter before we even get into the make ups Right. And so we're like, well, what, what could our thing be? What's the, what's the hook? What's, the, what's your niche? Right. And we're like, well, we don't want to do one about improv. We don't want to do one about theater. And we realize we both have a love of literature. Yeah. And there's something about going back and reading the books that you had to read as a child (laughs) and revisiting them and going, is this good or is this bad? Um, Why did I read this? Yes. Why did I have to read this? Why should I have read this? Mm -hmm. Depending on how good you were with homework. Why did I appreciate it? Why did I not appreciate it? How have things changed? So it's just us kind of goofing around and talking
0: about books. I love it. It's really fun. I love it so much. And I just have this thought right now where I feel like, there's a a parallel between podcasts and the sort of micro-performance where it's just one person or two people. Because most of the time, you're not... Unless it's like a live podcast recording, you're sort of like... It's a very personal, internal thing. You're like, I'm going to curate that... Essentially, you're like, I'm going to curate this conversation for myself. Because there are thousands of podcasts out Mm -hmm. there. I remember going through going through, like, the worst breakup of my life, and, like, what got me through it was watching a bunch of RuPaul's Drag Race, but then also listening to Mark Maron and being like, yes, I'm going to listen to the WTF podcast, and I'm going to listen to the voice of someone else who's also sad and frustrated and doesn't pretend like he's not, like, Mm -hmm. leans into the sadness and accepts the sadness and the frustration and also brings in joy and gratitude, but that was... I don't know. It Mm -hmm. was, I think, another instance of this, I mean, in this digital age where our attention span is getting shorter and shorter, I think podcasts are a lovely callback to these, like, you know, my dad was born in the 40s, so, like, listening to the radio, like, oh, my gosh, it's the time that we listen to the radio Mm -hmm. show, and and this is our thing that we do, and it's an extended conversation, almost. It's one-sided, but... Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it's it's it feels like a hangout with a friend. Totally. And this, they're not on NBC. They're not not on CBS. So they don't have to be crowd pleasing. Right. It's like, what if if eight people download each episode of my podcast and they each each of them enjoy it, then I would rather make something that eight people only enjoy Absolutely. than that a million people
0: think is fine. Like. And I just love do y'all edit. You edit your own as well. We do. Yeah. And that's just like. It's probably my least favorite. The editing is probably my least favorite part, but it goes quickly because I don't edit a lot. But what was I going to say? Hey, people. Oh, my gosh. I lost it. But, yeah, podcasts are cool. And I feel like, especially with a format like mine where I'm, like, talking to people Mm -hmm. one-on-one, I found that at least in Seattle, I'm just... I'm very grateful because in Denver, coming to this market, I was able to establish myself much more quickly as an actor and director than I was in Seattle because I think I was still finding myself when I was in Seattle. But it was the podcast that opened up more doors in terms of acting and directing gigs than auditioning and networking ever did. That's cool. Because you're in a closed room with someone for 45 minutes Mm -hmm. and they're like, okay, I really get your vibe and you you want to amplify my work and so... You're top of mind kind of the next time that I'm thinking of folks for a thing. And just, it's lovely to sit down for, it also forces us both to like not be on our phones for 45 mm-hmm. minutes, because that makes for kind of a tacular podcast. But yeah, in this digital age, yeah, we're searching for connection. I think podcasts are a lovely way to
1: go about that. Yeah. Well, something I love about My Favorite Murder, and I know this is just such the rage right now. Everybody's listening to it. Or, I'm going to listen to it, too. My favorite the, the hosts are two comedians out of L.A., and I think I would hazard to say they are living their best life right now. They have a wildly successful podcast. Um, they have fans. They get fan art. But both of them are very candid and open about mental health and struggles with substance abuse. Yes. And knowing that people who are living this amazing life have problems, and are not afraid to talk about their problems. And their problems are part of their humanity. And mm-hmm. what makes them such excellent hosts. Right. Like nobody. We need to stop pretending to be perfect.
0: So we can be human. Like Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we've sort of omitted failure from our vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Like it's not okay to fail. But you can't make cool art if you don't fail. You can't. It's impossible to create perfect art in a vacuum. Yeah. And that includes... Podcasting, which I consider an art form, and I remember the thing I was gonna say. Yeah. It allows you to do your own thing. Because most of the time I have a guest, I've done one live podcast, I've done a couple of panels, mm-hmm. but one of my favorite things was not this Christmas, but the Christmas before, I was like, I'm going to have a cocktail and I'm going to read all of the comments on Milo Yiannopoulos' rejected manuscript. I'm going to read those out loud, and I'm going to also read the press release that the Chicago Field Museum did for T-Rex, uh, Sue the T-Rex, the non-binary dinosaur. Like, I, it's winter, there's snow, I'm not going to drive anywhere, I was pet-sitting. Mm-hmm. But I did, I did that just for myself, and just the freedom when you're not beholden to a board of directors, right, right. to a subscriber base, to a donor base, where you could just try something mm-hmm. and then it lives on the internet maybe someone finds it maybe someone doesn't yeah. i think that's well, part of the joy n- there's no gatekeeper we absolutely we pay 15 bucks to podbean a month or do you host on podbean i do yeah. podbean
1: too yeah. and i yeah same same yeah so for 15 bucks a month there's no gatekeeper and you can have your thing and it's the way that you want it no if somebody doesn't like it they can give you a bad rating on the itunes and walk away
0: and then also the thing of uh the thing of not maintaining like a schedule mm-hmm. uh, because I just There was a time when I was in Seattle where I was doing two or three a week. I would just be like, you want to come on? Cool. You yeah. want to? Let's do it. And then getting down here for grad school, it was like for the MFA, it was – I think I maybe did six for two years just because mm-hmm. we were – It's not necessarily that I was busier than I am now, it's just it was more emotionally taxing because you're in the room, you're being vulnerable, you're reflecting, you're acting, you're creating, you're directing. And now mm, that my schedule is more like I take a little class, I teach a little class, there's a lot of time for homework and Mm -hmm. art, like the schedule, surprisingly, for a PhD is more spacious. So now I'm like, yeah, let's revisit this cool thing. Mm -hmm. And I also love one of the things that Elizabeth Gilbert says in Big Magic, which is like sometimes you can just leave an idea and you come back and it goes to someone else or sometimes you come back and the idea is like cool like you needed to take some time to marinate that's rad like let's get back into it yeah but to wrap up our time together because obviously we could talk for like another 40 minutes (laughs) this has been really lovely uh, uh, First, I want to know where folks can find more information about all the cool stuff that you're doing. What is your website?
1: My website is com, And let me spell that. J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-U-S-T-G-E-N. Uh, I'm an Instagram at
0: jessoshton.com. And my Twitter's the same, I believe. We will put your website, Insta, and Twitter handles Mm -hmm. in the episode description. And then could you, one of my favorite things to do uh, with folks who are in production uh, is leave folks with their favorite line. So can you think of a line that comes to mind either from Between Us or Sin Street Social Club that you can take us out on?
1: Yeah, one of my favorite lines from Sin Street Social Club, uh... My husband is playing Wilmore, and I just abuse the hell out of his masculinity in this. It's very, very fun. (laughs) But uh, there's a line where Angie B. says, you're a monster. And he says, please, I'm a man. And that makes me so happy. And sometimes the audience laughs sometimes they're like ooh but I was like ha
0: <laughs> so uh, monsters men and other folks who are listening uh, get your butts to see Sin Street social club at the Arvada Center and between us you can get a ticket if you're quick enough uh, produced through Denver Center for the Performing Arts off Center thank you so much for coming on the podcast Yay. thank you so much for having me